Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice by Maddiness. We really hope you're enjoying the Sex Tech series so far. I'm incredibly excited to speak to today's guest. He started and scaled a successful company off the back of his own hardship and experience. In a space that's hard to compete in, Sachin and his team have raised well over one million pounds and have helped many people overcome sex-related stresses and anxiety. Let me welcome to the show co-founder of Blue Heart, Sachin Raul. Super happy to be here, Graham, and uh, to have a, a chat. I've been really excited to interview you this week, right? Because I've been doing a lot of research on on you and on Blue Heart and everything you've done. And first and foremost, massive congratulations to everything you've achieved. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and, and I showed a branding expert, a friend of mine's a branding expert, and he absolutely loves the brand and everything you've done with it. So a huge congrats on that. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, you know, uh, it, it's always the team rather than like me. You know, like my. Oh, you're too modest. My, you're too my, modest. My, my function. My, my my function is to find the best people and that is the only way we're going to succeed i think that's the most important function that i perform for blue heart at least in the early stages and so uh you know anything that we've done is definitely like a team effort i i 100 percent can no way in any way take any credit for that um there's there's loads of people working really hard right now amazing look well it's it's you're you're a modest guy now we like it but it's one of the reasons being honest i'm I'm interested in speaking to you is sometimes i've interviewed a lot of founders over over the last couple of years and sometimes you see a clear path right you look at a founder and you say they studied that in university or you can look and say this is why they're doing it your background and what you've done you're probably not the the typical person to have launched a company like this is that fair to say i think you did a first class honors degree in the arts and then you had a master's of philosophy at cambridge it's not something that you would initially match up with this so i'm really curious to how it all came about yeah i mean i actually have to say kudos to the british education system for that so the, the reason i say that is because you know my my partner's from germany and the way it seems like a lot of educational uh, kind of upbringings in kind of, I'm thinking about continental Europe is very vocational. It's, you know, you do this degree, you become this, you study economics, you become an economist, you do X, you do Y. And I really think it's one of the best parts of being in the UK and growing up in, in the educational system here, which is you can study anything you want and you can become anything you want. So I never, ever thought of myself as put into a box or had to go down a certain route because of my educational background. And so it gave me the open-mindedness to just pursue whatever I thought was the best thing that I wanted to do without having to feel like, oh, I didn't have a business degree, so I can't start a business. I mean, it, it sucks, but I think a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world have that framework and it prevents you from doing things like uh, entrepreneurialism where your passions might want to take you in one direction but the choices you made when you were maybe 16 years old don't give you the confidence to do it and uh, you know I, I really think it's part of the education the UK education system where even though I've done degrees in, in history and, and politics uh, I at no point felt that I was confined because of those choices and I'm really happy that that's the case. Do you mean, even at the time, even when you were studying, you didn't think when you were studying, this is what I need to do? Even, even 
during your studies, you still realize that I'm studying this now, but I don't need to do this when I leave. Was that in your mind at the time? I think that, yes, that's true when I was about 19. So when I was, when I was kind of thinking about university and A-levels and that kind of sucky time in your life, um, you know, I, the best, I mean, I, I would say like one of my favorite things to do is trying to hear advice of older people. And the, the advice you get so much in your life is do what you love, do what you love, do what you love. And so, you know, there was all these paths and I went to a pretty conventional school where you kind of, you know, you want to, a lot of people go down like the professional route of, you know, doing, becoming a banker or a doctor or a lawyer. And, you know, I did, I remember doing a work experience uh, with a lawyer and just thinking this was the worst job that I could possibly think of doing (laughs) ever. But, but my world at that point, when you're young was so small, I was good at humanities. And so the what else could I do other than become a lawyer literally that's like your mindset which is obviously like completely insane but you know you're young you haven't really had that much exposure to the world and so you thought in that way and so I I, you know I was still like I'm going to pursue what I like and I just loved Roman history uh, and which is why I decided to pursue that as a degree and that went really well for me and I'm so I have the best decision I ever made and um, I remember my first year at, at UCL and I started to meet people who, you know, I asked them, you know, you're, oh, you're doing a degree, kind of, you know, what do you expect to do after? And their response was, I don't know. I have no idea. They didn't have a plan. They just, they're doing a degree. It wasn't for any reason. They just liked doing it. And that started to open my mind up. And it was very much at this point in time. And I say I was probably 19 or 20, something like that, definitely in my second year, where I was like, I definitely don't want to be a lawyer. Like, that is definitely not going to be the case. I couldn't think of anything worse. But that's when I started to open the doors of, okay, what do I want to do? And that is where the beacon of kind of entrepreneurialism kind of started flashing in my face. And since that point, uh, that, that was it pretty much, uh, which is why I've kind of pursued those kind of since then. Of course. Sometimes work experience can be just as useful finding things you hate to do, right? It's not about doing work experience and loving it. It's about crossing something out and saying this isn't actually for me definitely i mean i don't know how i would have felt about if i hadn't have done that work experience about my my future life i mean i I remember so i was was shadowing a partner or shadowing interning i don't know obviously doing nothing at 16 what do you know and uh and this this dude was just so tired he just he could barely open his eyes (laughs) and i just looked at him and and this is like the pinnacle of where you're meant to get to and I just looked and I was like, I, I, I just don't want to do this. Like, there's no part of me wants to end up looking or feeling like that. And, and you know, I, I just knew that this was never going to be an option that I would want to go down. But I hadn't yet really been exposed to, to much else. And leading on to Blue Heart, can you, can you talk to us about the, the origins of that and where that seed first got planted for Blue Heart? Yeah, so... I guess there was the the seed and then the kind of the growing blooming of the seed. And I would say there's there's quite a, a big void between those two moments in time. And so the first part of it comes from my own like personal life experience. And at no point during this personal experience was the idea of Blue Heart even conceivable. It just, it just didn't exist. I was just, I had I'd gone through a, uh, a really sad breakup. Uh, uh, you know, we'd moved different continents after university. I'd gone to South Africa and uh, I, I was really, really, really t- torn apart. And I was, I was struggling a lot with anxiety um, and some other kind of sex-related issues. And 
it went on for some time. And I, the weird thing is I didn't really recognize that anything was wrong because I didn't have the vocabulary to know what was going on. This was such a new experience for me. I hadn't really dealt with any of these emotions or, or behaviors before. And it was kind of through quite a long time, probably like a year or a two years of talking to friends about how I was feeling and, and my experience and my behaviors that they kind of like told me that this, this, these feelings aren't normal and you should really, really go and speak to someone about them. And this is the moment where I, it was so challenging to find good help and also help that was affordable because I mean, sex therapies, sex therapists uh, who, who are generally a wonderful group of people, they are, they are hella expensive. Um, and it was just such a big problem in my life that impacted me in so many ways uh, in terms of my happiness, my work life, just it, it, it pervades everything. And the help that is available generally online in books, like it is such a poorly studied, poorly understood area that getting access to the right help is so challenging. And so I had gone through therapy. Fortunately, I was able to, to manage to get some help and it, it was transformational for me in terms of understanding myself, understanding my feelings. And without it, I just probably would have struggled for years on end. And, and I don't want other people to struggle like that. And th that was my experience. But the idea for Blue Heart, you know, this was very much the preamble to the idea. This was setting the steam. But at the time, you know, I was just going through my problem and, and I didn't have any thought about any type of kind of company around it whatsoever. It was probably one or two years after this moment in time where I saw other companies coming out around anxiety, schizophrenia, depression in the digital therapeutic space. Um, and the research, the academic research coming from these products or things that academics had built was that it was really effective at dealing with those issues. And that is really where the kind of light bulb, I would say immediately connected where I, I, I saw, I, I saw these companies in, you know, dealing with anxiety, depression, um, and my only experience of serious problems that I wish had existed that I could get help with was, was around sex. And so I immediately started researching what was out there. Has, has anyone, has someone started to do this for sex? Uh, Cause I know one, I know so many people struggle with those issues. And two, I know myself, if a product had existed, um, like what blue heart is, I would have paid an almost like insurmountable sum for it because you're just so desperate um, and you really want that help. It means so much to you. And I did my research and I would say, I'm going to say I'm a pretty good killer of, of startup ideas. I, you know, give, give me 48 hours and I'll probably destroy an idea. And this, this was one that the more research I did, the more convinced I became that this was such a big chance to make a difference in the world, which was something since, since that moment in time, I said when I was 19, 20, I, I knew I wanted to make a big impact on the world and, and, and kind of technology and business was a really good way of doing that. Um, and, and we can come back to that point because I think there's, there's a bit more to say on it, but um, this was that moment for me where I saw this field that was really underdeveloped in terms of human sexual psychology. We know very little about it. So the impact to move the, human understanding of this area forward was just so big because so few people and so little funding is geared towards it. And two, it is such an important problem that does not get enough airtime in the world 
because it's it just impacts all of us in the most fundamental way you know relationships are our greatest source of pain and also the greatest source of pleasure and so we really need to do a better job generally of understanding how we connect with other people a lot better and that's where the kind of the passion for blue heart started and honestly since that moment in time one very little has changed in terms of our direction and our purpose uh, which is unusual for a startup usually you're pivoting left right and center very little for us has changed it was just kind of this moment of this is so clear so obvious and that has also made it much easier for me to kind of bring other people on board because they see the same things they see i want to have a difference in the world i want to make people's lives better i want to uh, move humanity forward and and this is a space to do it that that partner that you split up with do they know that you started blue heart out of curiosity um, they... i honestly we hadn't actually I, I i haven't spoken to them since we split so i have no idea it's interesting that that there's your ex is somewhere not knowing that <laughs> you know this this incredible company that's helping so many people um, has has come from something that was uh, quite quite difficult, and I'm sure difficult for both of you, right? Um, like I said, I, I have I honestly I haven't spoken to them. So I re I really have no clue. That was off topic, but I was just interested. <laughs> no, of course. Um, lots of people struggle with things in their personal lives, right? Yeah. Whether it's something quite quite serious like mental mental health, or it's something um, something quite trivial that they think there's a gap here and I need this product, I need this service, other people surely need it, but they never take that step and do it. What, why do you think you were different on taking the step to actually launch Blue Heart and get it done? I just risk. I, I, am, I, I guess there's some core parts of my personality um, that give me the feeling that I can do it. I think one of those characteristics is irrational optimism. I'm just irrationally optimistic about everything. I'm like, and even though your odds of success might be low, I would rather spend my life chasing those things that are super high risk that may not pay off, but, but if they do pay off, it's enormous. And in this case, it's, do I want to move humanity's understanding of sexual psychology forward so that we can have better relationships even if i have a 0.1 percent impact in that area that to me is kind of like i guess like the purpose of my life fulfilled in some way and so the risk of not doing it for me is so high i.e i would just be devastated later in my life looking back of the chances i didn't take and so i am i am always that person with my friends and entrepreneurs i speak to i'm like stop sitting around and not taking a risk like you have to take risk life is too short um and i i i i've i generally whenever i make those decisions i it has never led to a place of me being sad um i am only sad when i'm not pursuing the things that i love and i think everyone where possible if they have that chance and they see the opportunity in front of them to take it i'm i'm really 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 lucky that I found that thing and that calling at a relatively young age. Some people can might hit, get there when they're 30, 40, 50, and that's okay. I, I feel really lucky that that has come to me. But when when you see that in front of you, I, I'm just that type of person that I couldn't, I can never not take that path. It's just too, it's just too good for me to be true. Like I just, it, it gives me everything I want. Even if it fails, I honestly, 
it, it matters so little to me, the success or failure. It's more just, did you give it your best shot? And, you know, t- always take those risks every single time. So convincing yourself wasn't difficult, right? No, not even a slight, it wasn't even, a, it wasn't even a choice. It was like, this is so obvious, like th- there's nothing else to do. So you made, you made a decision that I would, I would always encourage founders to do and is not go it alone unless you really need to, right? It's, it's entrepreneurship and the journey is really, really tough and it's really lonely in general, right? Having someone to go down that route with that you, that you trust and you believe in and you know can help you get, get to that place. I always say that to people, if you can find that person, do it because it makes your life a hell of a lot easier and you can get to your end goal quicker. You mentioned your co-founder in the beginning, Robbie. Tell us about finding you and Robbie finding each other and how that played out. Yeah, so so we we actually met as part of uh, an accelerator program called Antler. And so they you you kind of join Antler not with a team but as an individual. Um you can come with an idea uh, but you join uh, predominantly as an individual, and Robbie was another person on the program. And there was a, you, you've got eighty people chucked in a room, and uh, you've got you've basically you're, you're freestyling it. You're chatting to as many people as you can, understanding what everyone's doing. And I hadn't actually spoken to Robbie in the first week at all. There were so many people to get through, we just hadn't come around to it. And uh, it was it was kind of a it was just serendipity. Whenever, whenever a lot of people are joining these types of programs, like Entrepreneur First, Antler, etc., they're going really, really popular these days. And everyone asks me, you know, about picking their picking their co-founder or picking who to to take that journey with. And I unfortunately am crap at giving advice on that because I just tell them I just got mega lucky. I just got so lucky. I went to I went to Robbie, um, and and Robbie is someone who is extremely ethically uh, uh, charged. In terms of you know he had that real similar compass of wanting to to make a difference in the world um and that's kind of why he'd left his previous uh, you know incredible jobs in programming uh, but he had that moral vacuum in his life that he again had that same feeling of i really want to make a difference in the world and and there were just lots of things about robbie that i didn't know when i first spoke to him it was just pure pure luck and serendipity at play where I spoke to him at Blue Heart, and at this time, I didn't know anything about Robbie other than his programmer, pretty much. Didn't know anything about him. And it turned out later on that um, his partner at the time uh, was a, trained to be a sex therapist and was a licensed therapist and been helping people with sexual issues. And so he had been kind of surrounded with this literature for, you know, for, for a really long time. Uh, and he had been kind of involved in the topic for, for a while. And, you know, to find a, a, a very, very good genius programmer is uh, to work on your idea is is pretty i would say that that's gold dust to find one that is also a sex therapist and is also uh, sorry also knows a lot about your particular domain in this case sex therapy which is pretty pretty niche as things go um and then on top of that in a time in his life in career where he can actually take that risk um it was honestly like a almost astronomical odds that that was the case and again Robbie and I, as soon as we teamed up, pretty much straight away from that conversation, it, that was it. It was done. And we've been together ever since. Was Robbie in that Antler Accelerator for his own startup and then, and then decided not to go ahead with that one? Um, he'd come in with an idea. And ironically, I was the one that killed it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, he, he came up with the idea um, that, I mean, it was a really good idea. It just, unfortunately, it had been done 
uh, by Discovery Health. Uh, I don't know if you know this company. They, they own um, Vitality, uh, but I'd spent my time in South Africa and, and knew this company quite well. And uh, he basically came up with the idea of Discovery Health, which is a really, really, really good, uh, one of my favorite examples of a great company. Um, uh, but unfortunately, they were also kind of multi-billion dollars and had done it probably like five or five or 10 years ago. So uh, he was a little bit late to the party, but still a good idea nonetheless. Um, so uh, yeah, he, uh, he, he kind of ditched that pretty early on. So talk to me a bit about, about the Antler program, like getting into the Antler program, what, what the process was like getting in and, and how much that actually helped build a foundation at the beginning. Yeah, um, so again, I get, I think a lot of people chat to me about this and I honestly don't know how to give any good comments on it. Honestly, I, it was three weeks before I think the program was meant to start. I met with, I did an internship when I was, uh, when I was uh, an undergrad uh, with a tech startup. I was obviously like obsessed with tech startups and wanted to get lots of exposure. And, and UCL had a program where they would place you um, at, uh, at a tech company and, and you got to choose which one you want to go in. And I picked this company and I became you know, really good friends with the, the founders of that company. And they're sort of a mentor to me. And I spoke to them just out of chance. I speak to them maybe once every year or two years. And I happened to speak to them uh, at this point in time, and it must have been a couple of, a couple of months before July 2019. And uh, I told them about what I was thinking about doing and, and I wanted to build a team around it. And you know, they immediately said, oh, I've, I'm, I'm, I know this program, Antler, it sounds really perfect. And, and this was before Antler had kind of a slightly bigger brand than they have today. This was their first London cohort. And they hadn't really, at least I hadn't really, I didn't know any much about the program. Uh, but they said, hey, like, you should, this seems really apt, go and join it. And so I honestly applied three weeks before starting. They sent me loads of interviews and tests, and I just did them as they came. I honestly didn't really think too much about it. And, uh, you know, really luckily got in, and uh, that was that. I, it wasn't a particularly stressful time at all. I just, I, I think a lot of these, I think in generally in interviews and processes, you should just aim to be yourself. And if you're not selected, maybe, like, that's also a good thing, like, if you've represented yourself and if you've been authentic, um, I think that's more likely to get you to places which fit your authentic personality as opposed to you trying to mold yourself to get to where you think you want to go. And uh, so I, I, I generally don't really think too hard about these processes. I'm just like, go and apply and be yourself and I'm sure you'll, you'll be okay. And if not, then move on, on to the next thing. It's a really good attitude to have. It's a really, really good attitude to have. The Antler invest in blue heart yeah they they were our first yeah they they uh well you have two months where you're kind of meeting a bigger cohort of around 80 people uh and it's up to you to work an idea that you want it's up to you to find who you want to work with and and all of that type of stuff and then after two months there's an investment committee to see whether they would like to invest in your company and and very fortunately we were one of the the ones that were chosen to move through to the stage next stage in what way did that cash injection? It was was it one hundred and twenty thousand pounds? One hundred and twenty k, but forty k is a program fee. So cash and bank is is eighty k. Okay, okay, that makes sense. How did that eighty k change the business? Because sometimes, you know, it, it can have a huge impact right away. Or sometimes with a lean business, it just means extending runway. What what way did that affect? Blue Heart, the, getting that cash in the bank. The best way someone described this to me was it's startup on easy mode. And so, you know, if you're, if you're doing it outside a kind of a structured program like Antler or, or any of the other programs that are, that are out there, of which there's, there's more and more seems to be every day, um, is that 
your access to that capital is is relatively stress-free. If you're doing it outside of those that structure, you know, you've got to go to meetings and meet angels and convince them that you've got a great idea. And if you don't have a kind of established kind of powerful network, that can be a really difficult task to do. And it's really time consuming, it's energy draining. And honestly, it just, it takes you away, particularly from that early stage where you want to be building, uh, you know, all your time should be building, 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 learning and measuring and, and, you know, developing your product. Um, You know, you've got to spend it chatting to investors and going through financials and, and all that kind of stuff. And at the early stages that that can be kind of really difficult to juggle those things. And so the the biggest benefit you get is someone gives you that initial quite important startup seed capital, um, at, which is pretty, pretty stress-free to be honest with you. And so it makes the process of starting a company so much easier than it otherwise could be. And so for us, again, you know, I, I feel relatively confident that we could have raised that amount otherwise. But the question is, well, then how much time would I've had been able to dedicate on the product? Because in the structure of the program, it was 100% of the time was spent on product and 0% of time was spent trying to raise capital in those first six months, which again was crucial for the product discovery that you have to do early on in your startup life cycle. Yeah, and eventually you did you did have to go out and pitch investors and pitch VCs to raise the next round of funding. Yeah, exactly. When Because obviously this is a sex tech series for maddiness, I've spoken to a couple of sex tech companies and, and there there's a couple of horror stories, right, about meeting VCs and, and talking about sex and, and them just finding it a bit awkward. What was it like raising that round of funding with, with VCs? Um, I mean, f- for me, honestly, I didn't have any of those horror stories. Everyone treated us with respect. Everyone took the issue seriously. And I think part of that is also how you you plural present yourself and your idea and so you know i'm a i would generally say i mean i'm I'm pretty serious on this podcast but like by and large i'd say i'm a pretty comedic person i love making jokes uh and i have a dark sense of humor but when it comes to blue heart sex sex therapy sex related issues it is such an easy topic to make jokes about you know sex is the the the, all 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 swear words all jokes are often sex-based and you will almost never find me making a sexual joke generally and so whenever I present to investors around this particular topic I always present it as a serious issue because I think one of the problems is that we see it as something to joke about something to laugh about and that is masking the true feelings and making it harder for people to chat about this stuff and so one of the I guess the reasons why I feel that we were taken very seriously is because I take it really seriously which is this is a serious problem and, I'm, and because I know almost every human being will be able to identify with the emotions of, of sexual problems, of breakups, of issues in their love life, everyone can identify with that. I walk in there and I take it super seriously and I try to connect with them in a way that they understand so that they don't make fun or that they don't make jokes. And no one has ever given, has, no one has ever made a kind of joke uh, like inappropriate or even appropriate ones because again, like they can see that I'm really, really serious when I'm talking about um, sex-related problems because um, I think we should take them more seriously. Of course. A lot of VC firms have a rule that they don't invest in sex, drugs, or gambling. A load of these large VC firms have that. Did you come across any of that when you were searching for investors? There were there were a handful of, of people that, you know, kind of fit that demographic. But, but, but to be honest with you, because I know those type of investors, they're not the right investors for us. You know, I want someone that 
believes in what we're doing. I want, you know, I can't have a prudish investor that uh, can't talk about sex. Like we're, we're, a, we're a talk about sex company. So, uh, you know, I, I almost, like, like I said about kind of joining the Antler program, it's about being authentic. If, if you're not there to get what you want, that's a bad approach. It should be, be authentic, be yourself, uh, be authentic with your company and the right investor will align with that. And I think if you try to misrepresent yourself or misrepresent your company, the trap you fall into is finding the wrong investor. And I think that can be a fatal mistake when you've got someone, because you maybe you really wanted to get money or you're, you love making deals or you, you love convincing people and you know how to do that, by being inauthentic, you're just more likely to get someone that's not right for you. And, and I was absolutely uh, adamant that we needed to find the right type of investor that believes in what we're doing uh, because they're going to be our business partner for probably the next 10, 20, maybe even 50 years. And, you know, I, I, I did not want someone on our board who doesn't believe in what we're doing. That's, that is the complete antithesis of why we exist. How many investors do you think you, you met raising that round of funding? Uh, if I had to estimate, I, I mean, I've got this on the table. I, I would, I think the number's around between probably 30 and 50, something, something like that, I would say. In the beginning of this podcast, you said that, you know, I complimented you on the company and the brand, quite rightly so. It's it's incredible. And you said your job is to get great people around you. That's that's what your role is. Raising that large round of funding. It was one million dollars, I think. Uh, that- it was a million pounds in, in million GDP, pounds. yeah. Even better. <laughs> so how did your role change raising that million pounds? And and did it did it take away any of the day-to-day that you love that you couldn't do anymore? Or did it allow you to concentrate on things you do love more? Was there any pros or cons? Yeah, so the way I think about this, and I'm actually writing an, an essay about this particular topic, which is what I, I describe as the metamorphosis of uh, a startup CEO. And so at the very start of the journey, you need to be a really, really good builder. You just need to be super fast and super quick at building something. It's also kind of why um, sometimes when you get more senior founders, um, they're not so good at the build stage because they've been they've been a manager for so long that they haven't really done the nitty gritty, you know, the kind of really crap work that you don't want to do. Um, but at the early stages, there's no one else to do it. So you've got to be just a really good builder. And, you know, Robbie and I were a formidable team because I was uh, a good designer and Robbie's just a fantastic coder. And so together we could just pump stuff out so fast. I mean, we got, we got a, an app on the Play and App Store's I think within a month to two months, uh, which is pretty quick going. And that, that was our MVP. We got it out there probably within 30 to 60 days. And that's because both of us are really good at building. After the round of capital, you kind of, your, your seed round, there's a slight transformation that happens here where your role isn't just building and you now become a builder slash manager. You are still doing a lot of the building because your team is not uh, enormous, but you've also got to manage the team um, and you move more into kind of the COO type role of, you know, you are now trying to create an infrastructure for a scalable company um, to avoid chaos further down the line. So you move from this builder type character to the COO type character where you're part builder, part manager. And then the the latter part of that in the next kind of phase of the, the metamorphosis where you completely change again is where you kind of transform into your 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 real CEO, where you're making high level strategic decisions, and you are 
purely managing people. You are no longer doing the kind of actual work down on the on the in the trenches. You're really trying to make those high level decisions and be a force multiplier to the rest of the team. And so do I miss it? I mean, I love design work, like just putting on tunes and sitting and doing designs for 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 hours into the night. Honestly, I do love it, but what I've gained is something different and I love them equally, which is being a leader, leading a team, having that responsibility. It 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 don't get me wrong, it weighs on you sometimes. Like sometimes you feel emotional, you feel tired, you know, every meeting you are switched on every meeting you are essentially leading every meeting you need to be taking in all the information and all, and if you miss anything that could be crucial and that is a lot of pressure it's a lot of energy it's a lot of mental resources you need to spend for that but the kind of the flip side of that is you know you get to empower all these people around you um, and you get to develop the team that you think can succeed and um, I have learned so much about leadership about people um and that that learning and that progression kind of helps me deal with the lack of not being able to do the kind of other nitty-gritty work that um i love um because it's a different type of work and it, it feels like the amount i've grown in this process like it it is it, it, honestly a decade worth of learning that has been packed into a year probably and uh that that is really special we do see a lot of founders put in their pitch decks exit plans. What's your exit? When is your exit? When's this exit happening? All the time. And more recently, we're seeing VCs and investors saying, please don't put, if you're raising early rounds of funding, do not put an exit strategy in your in your deck. And we're kind of, there's two sides of the fence with this, right? You, you mentioned your investors could be your business partners for 10, 20, possibly 50 years. What is your dream for Blueheart? So yeah, this is a yeah. I, I mean, I 100 agree on the exit uh, on the exit thing in terms of like don't putting it in there. And and the plan for for us is 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 pioneer the connection science movement. That's where we want to be. We want to have created a completely new category of understanding, which is connection science. And what does that mean? The reason I don't like to confine Blue Heart to just sex therapies, because I think it does a massive disservice to what it is that we're trying to do. We are not trying to only have people have better sex or better sex lives. The better sex comes as a byproduct of the other deeper psychological things that we need to deal with. So that is managing your anxiety. That is understanding how to communicate your feelings to your partner, feelings that because of years and years of growing up in an entrenched society which makes sex quite shameful that you may not even understand that you don't have the vocabulary or the capabilities to talk about we need to teach you about that and we we train you to connect with other human beings and that's that connection is not just a sexual relationship partner connection that is a way to connect in all areas of your life and understand people as well as yourself and others and so it's really how do we connect with other human beings and Right now, you know, if you think about the curriculum at school, what the hell do you learn about having to have a good relationship? You know, sex ed is, you know, put a condom on a test tube. Uh, that, that, that leaves out a lot, of, a lot of information there. And, you know, very few of us, I mean, I certainly wasn't taught how to be a good partner, how to be in a good relationship, how to care about other people. And yet, you know, there's, there's so many studies. I mean, there's one really famous longitudinal Harvard study that, you know, the, the, the best indicator for like future happiness and, and the biggest source of happiness in human lives is 
relationships. And I don't mean purely kind of spousal or sexual relationships, just, just relationships with other humans in general. And we are not at all equipped to deal with this as adults. We are taught nothing about this growing up. And that is what we're trying to undo. And so the Blue Heart purpose isn't grow a company, exit, show my VCs that they got, you know, you know, a multiple on their investment. It's we're trying to change the world. Your investment stuff, yeah, that will all go well as a byproduct of us doing this service to the world. That's what we're trying to do. Everything you want as an investor, that can come secondary. And I want people that are aligned with that trajectory. And so, you know, when people ask me, you know, is your dream to sell? Do you want to, I mean, the answer is no, like, I don't want to ever sell. Like, I want this to be a giant company that exists for, uh, as, as, a, as a, the foundational institution that changed our understanding of human sexual, sexual psychology. And there is so much to do. I don't think that conversation is going to stop. I don't think we're going to solve that problem in the next 50 years. So I expect us to go uh, way into the future. And, and that is, that's where, I, that's where I, I believe Blue Heart should go. What you've built with Blue Heart is absolutely incredible. And if anyone needs to know why, just go back and listen to this podcast again, because you're so passionate about what you do. And it's coming across in droves. Huge congratulations from all of us here about what you've built at Blue Heart. It's absolutely amazing. We wish you the best of luck and, and thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Graham. Thanks, man. It was great, great chatting to you and uh, some, some, definitely some novel questions that uh, I haven't been asked before, which is always nice. <laughs> always. Cheers, Sachin. Thanks, Graham. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Voice by Maddiness. If you did like the show, make sure to subscribe and make sure to give us a good rating on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Also, make sure to check out the complimentary article on maddiness.com related to this exact show. We'll be back with an episode really soon, but until then, stay safe.